Good evening and welcome to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Tonight is December 13th, 2022. Our class tonight is on the overview of the railroad worker struggle of 2022. What we're going to be learning today is the first section is going to be an explanation of the many terms used here that we must understand to understand this struggle. And then we're going to learn the background of the struggle, basically the conditions of the railroad workers preceding any action their grievances that led to these uh, uh, this struggle and these strikes, and then the timeline of the 2022 railroad railroad workers struggle, actually getting into the uh, nitty gritty of what has happened so far. Terminology of the struggle. All right, so the first thing we're gonna learn is the Railway Labor Act. The Railway Labor Act was a federal labor law that governs the railway and airline industries. The aim of the act is to replace strikes with arbitration and mediation when railway carriers and unions cannot reach an agreement as to the con as to contract terms. It empowers the government to intervene using a national mediation board to broker an agreement between the two disputing parties. The act stipulates that all negotiation procedures must be exhausted before there can be a change to the status quo, such as a strike. A strike is only permitted after all stipulated mediation procedures fail. The act also empowers the federal courts to issue injunctions to compel one or both parties, usually the workers, to act as the court dictates under penalty of fine or imprisonment. The act differentiates between major and minor disputes. A major dispute is the making or modification of an agreement and striking over major disputes is allowed. Um, a minor dispute concerns the interpretation and application of contract terms, and strikes are not allowed. Instead, a remedy through arbitration is expected. In the event of a strike, a railway carrier may replace a striking worker with a scab. The carrier may not fire the striking worker except for reasons of misconduct. The carriers must always must also allow strikers to displace their their replacements at the conclusion of a strike. If a railway employee crosses the picket line to work, perish the thought, and he is promoted by the carrier, he may keep his position at the strike's conclusion, regardless of seniority rules. Here is a list of the unions involved in the struggle. First, we have the American Train Dispatchers Association, the ATDA, the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen, the BLET, Brotherhood of Maintenance of White Employees, BMWED, International Association of Machinists, the IAM, International Brotherhood of Boilermakers, the IBB, the Mechanical Division of the International Association of Sheet Metal, Air, Rail, and Transportation Workers, SMART MD. The National Conference of Firemen and Oilers, the NCFO. The International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, the IBEW. The Transport Workers Union, the TWU. Transportation Communications Union, TCU, which includes the Brotherhood of Railway Carmen. The Transportation Division of SMART, including the Railroad Yardmasters of America, SMART TD, and the Brotherhood of Railroad Signalmen. Uh, now, keep in mind, we have the acronyms here because going further, we're going to go through their names by the acronyms. The unions most frequently referenced in the news are SMART TD and BLET. There's also Railroad Workers United, the RWU, which is itself not a union. But an activist group. It is, in their words, an interunion cross craft solidarity caucus of railroad workers and their supporters from all crafts, all carriers, and all unions across North America. They are pushing for amalgamation of the unions into one industrial union and nationalization of the rails. The NCCC, the National Carriers Conference Committee, a consortium of the five U.S. Class I railway carriers and one Canadian carrier. They are BNSF, CSX, Kansas City Southern, Norfolk Southern, Union Pacific, and Canadian National. A tentative agreement. 
a contract agreement made between the railway carrier bargaining unit and the bargaining unit from the union representing the workers. It is not yet an official agreement. The tentative agreement, TA, must be sent to the rank and file of the union for ratification votes. If the majority of the membership vote to accept the TA, then it becomes the new union contract for a designated period of time, usually two to four years. If the TA is voted down, then the representatives of the union and management must return to the bargaining table and make a new TA. In the case of the railroads, the federal government may step in to propose a TA to be voted on. They may even use their powers to force union, unions to accept a rejected TA, as we have seen earlier this month. Presidential Emergency Board. The president may create an emergency board to investigate and report on a dispute over the terms of a collective bargaining agreement. Under the Railway Labor Act, the president may exercise his discretion to create an emergency board when the labor dispute threatens to substantially interrupt interstate commerce to a degree such as to deprive any section of the country of essential transportation services. Creation of an emergency board delays a strike, lockout, or other form of self-help, generally for 60 days. The emergency board has 30 days to issue its report. Generally, emergency boards provide recommendations for settlement of the dispute. After the emergency board reports to the president, the parties involved in the dispute have another 30-day cooling off period to consider the recommendations of the emergency board and to reach an agreement. If no agreement is reached at the end of the cooling off period, then the parties may engage in self-help, including strikes, lockouts, and unilateral changes in terms and conditions of employment. A wildcat strike. A strike undertaken by union members without the sanction or approval of the union's leadership. In the United States, wildcat strikes are illegal. While engaging in them does not typically result in legal trouble, it strips striking workers of their legal protections. They may be fired or otherwise penalized by their employers. A wildcat may become a legal strike if it is later sanctioned by union leadership. In addition, rank and file union members engaged in a wildcat may petition the National Labor Relations Board, NLRB, to decertify their union and remove the workers' association with them. The wildcat then becomes legal as it no longer conflicts with the National Labor Relations Act. Under the RLA, wildcat strikes are always illegal. All that said, for certain industries, there is the threat of actual legal consequences for pulling a wildcat strike. Postal workers may be jailed or fined for striking, as can railway workers. Class collaboration. In the context of labor relations, this term describes working class organizations who abandon class struggle. For example, the leadership of a working class union who works with the bourgeoisie owners or politicians to suppress workers' demands are engaging in class collaboration. It is a process of reformism which seeks to reconcile the irreconcilable differences between the working and ownership classes. Scab, a slang term for a strike breaker, also called a blackleg. A scab is a replacement worker hired by a company for the purpose of undermining and ultimately defeating a strike. Scab may also refer to that most lowly of class trader, a union member that betrays their striking comrades and crosses the picket lines to go and work for the boss. Robber Baron, a derogatory term for wealthy industrialists and businessmen. It refers to the wealthy oligarchs by two features. One, as a robber who has stolen the surplus value generated by his workers to enrich himself. Two, as a baron, an unelected aristocrat who wields illegitimate power. There are not supposed to be any barons in a representative democracy. 
The term originally came to use in the 1860s and was used toward the industrialists at the time of the Rockefellers, Carnegie, and the like. Modern-day robber barons include Warren Buffett, Jeff Bezos, and Elon Musk. Labor aristocracy typically refers to members of the proletariat in a developed country who benefit from imperialism and the exploitation of the proletariat of less developed countries and receive a higher standard of living as a result. It is a way of exporting poverty. Lenin said that companies in highly developed countries exploit workers in less developed countries where wages are very low and working conditions are very poor. The companies extract more profit that way. Then they pay workers domestically a higher wage. This creates a domestic proletariat who is relatively satisfied with their standard of living and are less inclined to pursue revolution and overthrow the bourgeoisie. These workers are the labor aristocracy. Nationalization. The process in which a privately owned asset, such as a railway system, power grid, or postal system, is changed into a publicly owned asset. Sometimes the former private owner is compensated for the loss of their property. In the U.S., the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution is supposed to guarantee compensation for any property taken by the state. Sometimes no compensation is given, and the state simply takes, or seizes, if you will, the property. This often happens after a successful socialist revolution, as the property in question is being used to generate profit through the exploitation of others and is thus illegitimate. Yeah, uh, just to comment real quick, it's funny how when the workers need to get something done, oh, process, bureaucracy, bureaucracy, this, that, you have to do this, you have to do that. Oh, but when the CEOs and when all the rich do it, oh, it just happens. Uh, that's it. Thank you. I was interested that supposedly a union can petition the LR and LRB and see if they can have their union decertified so that if they then pull a wild uh, a wildcat strike it, it will be legal. Can anybody put a little more words around that for me? Well, basically, a wildcat strike is a is a strike that is uh, not supported by the union leadership. And for the railroad workers themselves, this wouldn't apply because any wildcat strike is illegal. But if the workers are, are unhappy with their leadership and say they want a different union representation or they want to represent themselves, they could decertify their union. At any point, a union could be decertified. Just needs a majority vote. So if the workers are unhappy and they want, don't want to face repercussions for a wildcat strike, they can, in theory, decertify their union, and then the strike would be illegal. illegal. Okay, quick question, though. It says a petition to the NLRB. Are you saying that it is up to them whether they can decertify or not? Well, any election has to be a, is a petition to the NLRB. The NLRB has to accept it. Oh, cool. All right. Thank you. In the very beginning, it said that the status quo must remain until all negotiation procedures are finished. Um, is there a set procedure or is it based on each case where they can make arbitrary uh, points of negotiation? Like, how do you know when they've exhausted all uh, procedure? Well, the, the procedure is exhausted once the 30-day period after the PEB issues its recommendations. 30 days after that is when the, all options have been exhausted and they could uh, go past the status quo period. I noticed they had said that, you know, obviously rail workers are not allowed to strike, even wildcat strike, and same with a post office. But I know that, like, in some school district, anybody but or the teachers cannot strike as well, like, is this like a common thing in a lot of different unions across the country? Because I hadn't really heard of that. It is common, but uh, only in certain industries. Specifically in this case, the uh, Railway Labor Act uh, covers railway workers and also uh, air traffic control workers. 
airline workers. And because they are governed by the Railway Labor Act rather than the National Labor Relations Act, um, the uh, Railway Labor Act specifically disallows it. It's also worth noting that state legislation can have different rules regarding this as well, apart from national uh, legislation. Yeah, kind of building off that, it was the air traffic controllers strike in the 80s that um, basically had then Ronald Reagan and his government basically say, uh, public sector workers, you are now, it is now illegal for you to strike. And also, as mentioned, depending on state laws, there are some state public employees that are forbidden to strike as well. So. Yeah, I appreciate the definitions of the terms scab and blackleg. Um, I've heard the word blackleg a bunch from all the times that I've listened to the song Power in a Union by Billy Bragg. Um, but I never made that connection, actually. Just, I, I, why are they called that? I know, I can imagine why a, a scab is called a scab, but what is, why are they, why is it called a blackleg? Just if you could answer that really quickly for me. I got that one. Um, it's a coal mining term. When, uh, when workers were out on strike from the coal mines, um, they could always tell who had been down and working in the mines when they were supposed to be on strike by the fact that they had black legs. This subject is very, very interesting. The subject of railroads. Uh, uh, you have no idea how interesting it is because a railroad strike can shut down the whole economy. And so uh, uh, what the uh, companies are doing is they are playing with fire because, because they are torturing these railroad workers with the, with the work rules and other conditions of work. And so they're going to be collecting the sympathy from all the workers in the country. And so if they end up going on strike, there's going to be sympathy strikes in support of them. And so this is an extremely, extremely dangerous situation for the ruling class. These guys can shut down the whole economy. So just a little side note. Thank you. A aspect that I think is also important is is also the damage that the uh, railroad companies themselves are doing to uh, the uh, uh, logistics to uh, 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 to the infrastructure as they own through neglect and labor cuts and precision scheduling uh, to, to undermine the reliability of the railroads yes we'll get more into that in the next section Yes, I was also liking to bring up two points. Uh, this is a very kind of dicey thing to discuss, but um, let's say the state attempts to use uh, force to break up the uh, railroad strikes because apparently railroad strikes are illegal. Is there could be, or is there a possibility that we could have like another Blair Mountain? As much as like that is a little bit risky to discuss, and you know there could could there even be a possibility of it leading to a general strike? In theory, yes, that could happen. I don't think the workers are organized enough for it to happen at the present time. There is militancy growing within the railroad workers. I don't think it's at a point where you're going to see that yet. Just uh, this uh, tentative agreement now contract that they just put on the workers expires in only two years. So we'll see what could happen in two years time. Just adding on to that a little bit is 100% correct. And when we look at this situation, we need to analyze it through Foster's lens. This is a tactical situation. And right now they're facing a lot of struggles, but they do not have the upper hand. If they do manage to wait two years and they spend two years planning, that is when they could make more appropriate moves. They need to know what's gonna happen and make plans for it ahead of time. The final historical note on that, since you bring it up, would be the last time that actual a violent struggle occurred in a, uh, a, a railroad context was over a hundred years ago during the Pullman strike. 
And the result of that was um, staggering defeat on the part of the union. 70 people died, as well as a very prominent social socialist politician going to jail. Eugene Debs. Thank you. Yes. Um, yeah, my question was, isn't the, um, the secondary strike outlawed by Taft-Hartley? Thanks. Well, Taft-Hartley was a, an amendment to the National Labor Relations Act. And since railroad workers are not governed under the National Labor Relations Act, it doesn't apply to them. In fact, mo all these unions, there's 12 of them, they all have in their contracts that they uh, do not have, they're not required to cross the picket line, that they could strike with the other unions. That's why, that's why it was such a big deal that only four, that four of the 12 unions voted no. You mentioned one group that was not a union, the, RW, the RWU. Um, what do we think of that as far as something strategic for the unions, something that I believe they want to kind of create one single union? Uh, the RWU certainly has its faults. Um, there are problems, but it is important to understand that what they're going for is solidarity and nationalization of the rails. They do have some good goals. And whether or not I agree with everything that the RWU is doing, um, I don't think they analyze strategy using Foster in the same way that we would, for example. But whether I agree with that or not, I think it is an important um, thing to consider, especially if we are going to be working with labor and we are going to be working with the people who need to understand class consciousness. We have to work with the people who understand that the most and who are the most militant. I couldn't say it any better than we have our differences in uh, the way they approach things, um, but they are definitely the most militant within the railroad workers at the moment. Background, grievances of the workers the high-vis attendance policy. This punitive policy started with, with the BNSF Railway on February 1st, 2022. Railroad workers started with a bank of 30 points, and if they miss a shift or call in sick, they lose points. The number of points lost depends on what day of the week it is, how busy the rail yard is, and whether they miss multiple days in a row. It is possible for workers to lose all 30 points in just a few infractions, and they could lose up to 25 points in a single infraction. Workers originally wanted to strike over this policy with 17,000 workers rallying to prevent this from taking effect. A federal judge, however, blocked this multiple times, calling the policy arguably justified, but also harsh. Railroad, railroad workers currently have zero paid sick days. They are one of the very few numbers of union workers who receive zero sick days of paid sick leave. The workers were asking for 15 days of paid sick leave in their contract, but this was a concession as the workers themselves believe sick days are a right and no one should be forced to work while sick. The House had legislated that the workers would receive seven days of paid sick leave, but the Senate struck it down, knocking that number back to the zero that was placed in the PEB tentative contract. Precision Scheduled Railroading This is the policy that creates forced overtime and one-man crews. Originally introduced by Hunter Harrison, this policy sets the railroads up to put the least number of workers on any given crew or job. This goes as low as one-man crews, and then, when there is an absence, the worker at the site goes into forced overtime. They will hold an employee over to cover the vacancy. 16 hours in a rail yard isn't just grueling, it's unacceptably dangerous. The potential for fatalities is glaringly real, made exponentially worse by fatigue hybrid discipline. The hybrid discipline policy is also a point of contention. The workers are asked to work at a completely unreasonable pace. Then they are penalized when inconsistencies or errors are found in their work. This creates an unsafe environment where workloads are not set to reasonable standards 
and that employees are shamed and disciplined for not being able to meet these unreasonable expectations. A sum of events up to the Presidential Emergency Board. The heart of these troubles began on unexpected dates. One of the first large issues was the precision scheduled railroading, which began in 1993. The railway workers have spent many years trying to adapt to this, but time has proven the danger and long-term inefficiency of this system. Next, there is a bit of an odd nuance here because technically railroad contracts never expire due to the Railway Labor Act. They are just continually amended. For the sake of our discussion though, the railroad union contract had expired in 2020. These negotiations began in earnest in 2021 when it was clear that the workers were demanding more than the railroad companies were willing to give them. Our third major point of contention was the high-vis attendance policy, which went into effect February the 1st, 2022. This was met with an immediate reaction from the workers and the unions demanding that the implementation would be canceled or they were going to strike. By the end of February, this notion was shot down as a federal judge in Texas called this a minor dispute and would not qualify for a legal strike under the Railway Labor Act. Negotiations continued throughout the summer over the contracts for the railway workers, but it is imperative that we understand by this point they had already been dealing with years of concessions. Mortality rates were rising due to precision scheduled railroading. High-vis complaints were shut down by the federal courts. Contracts were not meeting standards, and it was clear the time to strike was coming. By July, the first vote to strike was authorized. We'll learn more about what happened after this in the following timeline of events. Well, I could be straight. Um, I know PSR very well. Um, it brings me no joy in what I see in P PSR. Dwell is what they look at. What dwell is, you have a train. A train is a car or a bunch of cars and locomotives. You need that to make a train. Um, what they do is per station, they check to see what the average dwell is for a car. When that goes up, people in management are bad. When that goes down, exploitation goes up. Now, they look at one metric. It's not exploitation. It is their dwell. What exploitation is, if you want to quantify it, it's what we just saw there. It is overtime. It is the amount of work. These people are asking for time off to see their families, and they don't get to because they have to reduce dwell. That's what people care about. Also, uh, there are things in automation that are happening. Um, TO, trip optimizer, um, which is kind of like cruise control for a locomotive. Obviously, we could see in a different kind of system where your job was, isn't endangered that something like Tripped Optimizer could be very beneficial, but a lot of people are, and it does, that's why Tripped Optimizer exists, is to remove people's jobs. Um, 90 seconds. There you go. I had the, uh, this past summer, I went on vacation to the state of Alaska, and while I was in Alaska, I had the opportunity to ride on the Alaska Railroad from Anchorage, Alaska up to Fairbanks. And it is really amazing how the majority of the state of Alaska depends on the Alaska Railroad for its lifeblood. Without the Alaska Railroad, the state of Alaska would virtually shut down. There would be millions of people that would be affected as far as food and supplies go. The Alaska Railroad has a very strong union and backs its workers 100% plus. There was also a great documentary on Discovery about the behind the scenes of what goes on with the Alaska Railroad that I had the opportunity to watch. And the rail workers do put in a lot of hours. They're subjected to a lot of uh, adverse conditions from being attacked by bears to being out in the extreme cold during the wintertime to uh, keep the Alaska Railroad going. They even have certain areas in Alaska that are avalanche traumas, they have to create these artificial avalanches to ensure that the railroad gets through. Even the military in Alaska depend on the Alaska Railroad for delivery of its military hardware. 
So I can see how extremely important the railroad system is to a country. And since my own experience with the Alaska Railroad has taught me a great bit about my respect for the railroad system in general and the and the uh, the railroad workers in general. So I can see the importance of how all the terminology and the laws to protect the workers' rights in this case are definitely needed virtually by my own experience with my uh, time spent in Alaska this past summer. That's all I have to say. Thank you, comrade. Point of information, it would be tens of thousands, not millions. We barely have 700,000 people in the state. So I just wanted to add that in there. Yeah, so my basic question is, I understand solidarity, but what what do these other groups that aren't unions, like, wouldn't they be better if their membership was a part of the union, you know, a group that can actually take legal action? That's basically my naive question. Thank you. Uh, RWU is essentially made up almost entirely of railway union members. Um if that's the what you were talking about almost all of them are railroad union members uh there are some people who are in there strictly as support um but the idea is that it is um an amalgamation of union workers from across different spectrums of the different crafts uh their their aim is to uh create an industrial union instead of a craft based union I will say it's very sad that I'm sitting here and I'm realizing how exploited other workers are, uh, you know, even more so than we know a lot of industries are the idea of, you know, uh, no sick days and how many, you know, accidents will happen because workers are overworked. And I don't know if we remember a few years ago when there was a really bad crash, I think it was outside Pennsylvania somewhere. It could be wrong, but there was a really bad Amtrak train case and the media kept wanting to blame the driver of the train for this accident. And no one in the media had discussed, well, what's this guy or was this driver overworked? Did this driver, you know, were they in good health when they drove? Uh, where's the responsibility of the train owners? And of course, no one wants to talk about that because, you know, they're all capitalists, but it's stuff that we have to talk about and we have to discuss and we have to get other workers to realize the importance of. Thank you. Uh, to piggyback off of what you said, you notice how in the media, the capitalist media, the only grievance they mentioned was the sick days. Because they don't want to talk about the overexploitation. They don't want to talk about guys are dying on the railroad. Uh, a lot of the push, uh, there was a guy that um, a railroad worker that died on the train uh, a couple months ago that started a lot of the push with uh, to vote no on the contract. So they don't care. And uh, one thing I learned today, because the longer we, more we go into it, the more we learn. It's, but uh, even the sick days was only only became an issue because of the high vis attendance policy, and other attendance policies like it. Because workers were fine; they used to go sick, and they were able to go sick, and as long as they needed, but they weren't paid. Now they can't even go sick, and as we'll see later on. When we when we talk about more things, but part of the PEB was they were able to get one more sick day, one more day, one day they were able to take off, but it was pigeonholed and they could only take it Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, and they had a request to thirty days in advance. How do you know if you're going to be sick thirty days in advance? It's it's a farce. That's it's a it's a big thing in the media. They're going to talk about sick days. They're going to talk about how much extra money these guys are making. They're not going to break down how that money is uh, basically null and void due to inflation they're and they're not going to talk about what the railroad workers care about I, i've spoken with some of these guys uh the number one thing that they care about is they want to be back home with their families these guys are on call 90 percent of the time throughout the course of a year 90 percent of their year is on call time and if they miss a high impact day if they miss a phone call on a high impact day and do a no call no show that's 25 points off of their 30 on the high vis attendance policy and you know i'm sure there are some nuances to that but i've read through this policy it's it's scary and you know a lot of these guys it's going to be scary to them too 
uh, nobody read. I mean, they should, but most people don't read in detail their union contracts. It, it's a lot of work. But what these guys, what these folks care about is being home with their family and being safe. But that's not what you'll hear about in the media. Yeah, I was just kind of curious. I mean, I know that there have been studies done that kind of show, I can't remember the exact hours, but if you work past a certain amount of hours or you're that tired or you haven't gotten enough sleep, then it's like equivalent to being drunk on the job. Um, is there any, I mean, and obviously that's illegal. You can't drive when you're drunk. You can't do anything like that, but you can operate a like three mile long train um, being exhausted. Is there is there anything around I don't know. I don't know if that's helpful, but is there anything like legally that workers could push for in that way? Thank you. Well, they tried to push for it in their new contract, but they were forced to accept the recommendations of the PEB. And going off of um, what the other comrade had to say about derailments, derailments are really quite frequent, though not very well reported on. Presumably because it's very hard to drive a train that's 80 cars long on, you know, when you've been up for 20 hours at a stretch. And the longer this goes on and the more these people are exploited, the worse this is going to become. Yeah, to piggyback off that real quick, the comrade mentioned the Amtrain uh, derailment. You know what they did with that Amtrak, Amtrak derailment? Instead of uh, regulating the trains more, they went after the buses. In mass transit, they cut all they cut all time that we were allowed to work. They didn't go even go after them at at the behest of these companies. And uh, one more short thing to add before we get back to the hands. Keep in mind, we're not just talking about rail uh, railway drivers, uh, train operators, and engineers. We're talking about people who operate heavy machinery, power tools, welders, electricians. Um, people who are working in rail yards operating switches and various signals that guide where these trains are going. And you're not talking about 10, 20 cars. Uh, you're talking about hundreds, if not thousands of cars, depending on where you are. And it's also the job of loading these up with often dangerous and hazardous materials. Thank you. Uh, my question is in regards to that, uh, that 30 point system. Maybe you mentioned earlier, I got here a little late. It, well, what happens once you go into negative points? How do they penalize you? Thank you. You get fired. Oh, shit. Yeah, part of the thing that seems really insidious to me, too, is when they block the, the vote to strike. Is that um, didn't they also like split part of the bill, too, to give the sick leave? Because they knew that if they passed it, if they put it in together, where if they blocked the strike, but they gave a sick leave, then if that, that would probably pass to stop the strike, but they split it. So they wouldn't even get the concession of like, I think it was like seven days, seven days, which they wanted like 15, right? So it was the, it was, this concession was just, it's like they're lesser of two evils, but they're just, they're both just as evil. There's, there's really no, there's no point in voting any of these parties or like Republican or Democrat in, into power and you can't even vote your conscience into it. And a lot of like the, like justice Democrats, I think only one of them voted against the, the strike. I think it was also because it also affects airline workers too. So this could also be some sort of precedent for in the future against them too. And this is kind of funny giving in like a post COVID kind of area, even during COVID, you know, but when, before we even knew the, the 90 seconds factor to it, it, it was so scary and railroad workers already have a, a like higher risk of cancer already. And comorbidities is normally what kills, kills you with that. And it just seems so insidious to me. That's all. Thanks. Just to respond to this real quick. Yes. You're 100% correct. Um, there are no good guys in this situation. The Democrats, the Republicans, the president, every one of these people knew what was going to happen when they set this in motion. They all knew. Um, you can't, you will never convince us that the uh, House didn't know how the Senate was going to vote and they didn't know what the effect of these splits were. And, well, you know, hopefully we have time to talk about this tonight, but there are even those in union leadership that have caused problems with this. Um, and to also go on a little bit further with what you said, 
Um, the railroad workers do know this. They feel defeated by it. They did everything within reason that they were supposed to do, and they were blocked at every path all the way up to the president signing that piece of paper against them. They, it has set a precedent. It has set an incredibly dangerous precedent that these workers have zero power, and they need to understand that while they're planning for their next contract two years from now. That's why we talk about foster. That's why we talk about tactics and strategy. Because these workers have to understand that if they play by those rules, then they don't have any power. Okay, yeah. Back to my uh, travels to Alaska this past summer. Um, one thing I did notice, too, is that the Alaska Railroad will not allow or authorize anything beyond 12 hours for their employees. My own personal experience. The specific train that I was on, we were between Denali and Fairbanks, and we had to stop the train in order for a relief crew to come on and disembark the outgoing crew. We had to wait up to 30 minutes for to an hour for the relief crew to come on board. That's just how strict the Alaska Railroad is to be about working hours with their employees. In turn, that just, you know, the latest from getting into Fairbanks, we didn't get into Fairbanks until after 10 in the evening. We should have been there by 6. That was another example from my own experience of how the Alaska Railroad will not authorize employees to work anything beyond a 12-hour shift, primarily due to safety precautions. So that's one example right there I can tell you of this specific railroad, in this case, Alaska Railroad, as far as working overtime or grinding their employees to the ground. It doesn't work in the state of Alaska that I'm, I can't account for other states. But the state of Alaska does not allow that based upon my own experience. Also here in Hawaii, I can't really relate to railroads other than what I just shared with you, Alaska, because we do not have a railroad system here in the state of Hawaii due to where we are geographically. 90 seconds. We do have a lot of um, uh, transports that act as railroads, even though we don't have a specific railroad per se. That's about all I have to say. Thank you. Yeah, one thing, to, one thing to keep in mind with that, this is what, what we're talking about, specifically freight railroads. There's a lot of different rules between freight and tran transit uh, transport. And uh, again, rules could uh, vary within states. Uh, I know New Jersey has stricter laws with overtime. New York has stricter than some states, but they really let you get away with a lot here. Um, so it could vary state to state how extreme it gets. In addition, the uh, bargaining unit we're talking about on the uh, part of the carriers, the NCCC, represents only uh, what are called class one freight carriers. And uh, that is who the uh, 12 unions are bargaining against. It's entirely possible that the railroad, uh, the Alaska railroad carrier is not part of that bargaining unit and uh, the conditions are different. So I know CDL drivers have some kind of protections for the amount of hours that they're able to drive. How did that come to be? And can we use a similar strategy to get protections for the railroad workers? Thank you. Well, in theory, they're supposed to cover both because both should be um, fall under the National Transportation Safety Board. But uh, mass transit drivers, a lot of these CDL drivers owner operators or they don't work for major companies so they're not facing the same type of backlash from modern day robin barons that the railroad workers are i mentioned the so-called justice democrats and how all but one of them voted to break the strike and if you go to gov the govtrack website and look at voting records you will find something very insidious, which is when it comes to decisive votes like this, there is always one person in the so-called squad who votes in a pro-worker way, but it they rotate who it is every time. And I, it's a different, you know, one time it'll be, Rashid, I think this time it was Rashida Tlaib, last time it was um, Ilan Omar, you know, one time it was Ocasio. And I, I believe the reason they do this is to keep the false hope alive. This sounds like a conspiracy theory, but it's true. I think something unique about the Alaska Railroad, too, is it's a 
it's it's owned and operated by the Alaskan state. So there, there's also that that aspect of it too. Timeline: July, August, 2022, uh, 7:12. BLET membership votes to authorize strike in near unanimous vote. 714. Smart TD president announces initial strike authorization has been granted unanimously by affected general chairpersons. 715. President Biden issues executive order appointing neutral presidential emergency board, PEB, issuing PEB triggers 60-day cooling off period. 816, PEB announces its recommendations, cooling off period to end 916. This is an RWU special report, the PEB board number 250, as it releases its recommendations. Late Tuesday, August 16th, Presidential Emergency Board number 250 released its 124-page report, complete with its recommendations to settle the long-running bargaining dispute between the nation's big rail carriers and the nation's rail unions. While the labor organizations discuss the report and the rank-and-file attempts to wade through all of its verbiage between grueling work shifts, the organization that represents the rail carriers lost no time in issuing joyful reaction to its disclosure. By Wednesday morning, the American Association of Railroads, AAR, and the National Carriers Conference Committee, NCCC, had issued official statements both expressing satisfaction with the recommendations of the PEB. This alone speaks volumes. On most of the important and pressing quality of work life issues, the ones that probably matter the most in terms of recruitment and retention of railroad workers, the PEB simply shoes to kick the can, simply shoes to kick the can down the road, reminding the carriers and the unions to reach agreement, something they have not been able to do previously for two and a half years now. On questions of attendance policies, work schedules, time off the job, predictably of train lineups, call times, etc., the board would recommend the organization withdraw the proposal or simply remand the matter to the parties to address. Railroad Workers United, RWU, our steering committee and membership will be discussing and debating the PEB in the coming days and will issue our position on the PEB recommendations accordingly. We encourage all railroad workers to read the entire document, but barring that, see our summary of the PEB's recommendations below and check the actual pages of the report for the PEB language. Also, there is a PEB summary that is worth looking at near <clears throat> the end of the report. In terms of general wage increases, here is what the board recommends over the five-year life of the contract, retroactive to 2020. In 2020, a 3% increase compounded to 1.03%. In 2021, 3.5% increase compounded to 1.066. In 2022, a 7.0 increase compounded to 1.41. And in 2023, 4% compounded to 1.186. And in 2024, 4.5% compounded at 1.24%. Note on December 1st of each year, each employee would receive a $1,000 on-time lump sum payment for a total of $5,000 over the life of the contract. Uh, th this is just important to keep in mind because when we hear this from the media, they describe it as if they're getting all of this all at once. A summary of the board's recommendations. Uh, I'm going to skip the page numbers and I'm going to read the union requests. The wage increases this goes to see above. Health and welfare status quo, 15% monthly contribution from employees. Three new federal holidays to be added that no new federal holidays be provided. Personal leave days, one additional leave day be provided per employee. Paid sick leave, withdraw the proposal. Schedules and off days, remand the parties back to negotiations. Attendance policies to be negotiated, withdraw the proposal.
BLT and Smart TD meal allowance remand the parties back to negotiations. BRS signal maintenance differential withdraw the proposal. BMWE travel meals lodging allowance adopt organization proposal with minor modification. Yardmaster scope rule and vacations withdraw the proposal. Yardmaster vacations withdraw the proposal. Shop crafts shift differential withdraw the proposal. Shop craft meal allowance period withdraw the proposal. NCFO additional pay for incidental work withdraw the proposal. TCU clerical discipline for use of sick leave withdraw the proposal. Supplemental sick benefit plan withdraw the proposal. August, September 2022. 829. ATDA, IAM District 19, IBEW, TW, TWU, TCU, BRC announces tentative agreements based off PEB with the NCCC. 911. BMWED, IBB, Smart MD announces TAs with the NCCC. 913, NCFO announces TA with the NCCC. 914, IAM District 19 members vote down tentative agreement, authorize strike. TWU, TCU, BRC members ratify TA. White House gets involved in negotiations of final three unions yet to agree to a TA with the NCCC. 915, ELT, Smart TD, BRS announce TAs with the NCCC. 927, IAM, District 19 announces second tentative agreement, an agreement to extend cooling off period by two months. 928, IBEW members ratify tentative agreement. October 2022, 10-2, IAM Local 696 President Reese Murdaugh issues letter condemning IAM District 19 agreement to extend cooling off period without rank and file input. 10-4, ATDA members ratify TA. 10-7, TCU announces TA with CSX International based off PEB. 10-10, BMWED members vote down TA cooling off period ends to 1114. 1012 Smart MD members ratify tentative agreement. 1013 NCFO members ratify tentative agreement. 1019 Twitter Lee claims IAM Local 696 President Murtaugh will run for District 19 President due to handling of negotiations. 1026. BRS members vote down tentative agreement. TCU members ratify tentative agreement with CSX. November 2022. 11-5. IAM District 19 members ratify the second tentative agreement. 11-6. BMWED extends cooling off period to line up with all unions. 11-11, IBB members vote down tentative agreement. 11-21, BLET members ratify tentative agreement. Smart TD members vote down TA. In total, four unions reject the tentative agreement while eight ratify. Though this is a majority of unions, the four who rejected make up the majority of railroad workers. 11-28, President Biden releases statement calling on Congress to ratify tentative agreement negotiations by his administration against the Democratic will of the railroad workers without any alterations. 1129. It is announced that Congress will bring up the tentative agreement to vote on 1130 with a separate vote to add seven paid sick days. November 22, the House of Representatives vote. The House of Representatives vote to force rejected tentative agreement on railroad workers. 211 Democrats voted yes, eight voted no. 79 Republicans voted yes, 129 voted no with five no votes, totaling 290 versus 137 with five on the no vote. 
That is uh, for the tentative agreement. House of Representatives vote to add seven paid sick days to the tentative agreement. Democrats 218 yay, zero nay, one no vote. Republicans three yay, 207 nay, three no vote. Total 221 versus 207 with four not voting to pass the seven days paid sick leave. December 2022, the U.S. Senate vote. 12 1. Senate votes on three bills, one to extend the cooling off period, then sick days, and the final vote was to force the tentative agreement. For the cooling off period, 46 Democrats voted nay, two no vote. Republicans, 25 yay, 22 nay, three no vote, and independents, two nay. Total 25. For yay, 70 for nay, five no voting. Sick days, Democrats, 44 yay, one nay, three no vote. Republicans, six yay, 42 nay, two not voting. And independents, two yay. Total 52, 43, and five. Yay, nay, and not voting regarding sick days. And to force the tentative agreements, Democrats, 42 yay, four nay, two not voting. Republicans, 37 yay, 10 nay, two not voting and with one present. And independent, one yay, one nay, totaling 80 yay, 15 nay, four no vote and one present. Biden signs bill forcing rejective tentative agreement on railroad workers. With all these other 12 major railroad unions is there no organization that coordinates all of them for their own tentative agreements why did they all come to their own agreements and why is there no system in place for them to essentially agree as a mass organization whether or not they'll reject or accept the tentative agreement thank you the short answer is they're all craft unions but some of them have joint bargaining unions where multiple a bargain, but they're not all under one bargaining unit. But that's one of the goals of the RWU. They want to amalgamate and they want one big industrial union of all railroad workers. So it would be one bargaining unit and they'd have more power altogether. Yes, I just wanted to throw this in. I'm sure everybody, you know, probably sticking along the same lines in the back of their head, but we may be the only major country in the world, as far as I know, of the industrial countries where the nation doesn't own its railroads. The French, is the French National Railroad, the Italians don't have the uh, railroads, the English, and uh, in Germany, it's all owned by the, and even the Canadian, it's the Canadian National Railroad. As far as I know, and anybody can correct me, is that uh, many of these countries in Japan uh, and China, the uh, the railroads are owned by the, the country, and of course, uh, if it was owned by the nation, it would be run as a civil service and, and not as a profit making, and it would be a lot easier. That doesn't mean that I worked for the government in New York State for almost 40 years, and uh, that doesn't mean that it makes it easier you know, for, for union members, but at least it would make a lot easier because the profit mode of that waste would, would be thrown out the window. Uh, and it would be a lot easier if the money is coming in, people who have to, uh, you know, use the freight and haul the freight uh, and, and the, and the uh, other companies. And uh, therefore, there would be a, a lot of money coming in for the government. 90 and seconds. It would be no problem for them to uh, uh, give the workers a, a decent contract. But, and I work for the state and anybody who works for any state or in, in the you know, major states uh, of the United States, not the southern states that would like the world, uh, even the United States government, uh, everybody has tremendous sick pay. And every major country in the world uh, has sick pay. And even Biden mentioned that. We're the only country in Two the minutes. world where sick leave is not uh, as a granted. Uh, you'd be surprised to hear, and I'm not going to list every one of them, but... China, Russia, and India all have nationalized rail lines, but the United States, Canada, Germany, Argentina, Australia, and Brazil are all 
privatized rail lines, and those were the top nine largest rail rail lines in the world. And just a quick correction, uh, England has stripped away there. Uh, there's been a lot of privatization since Thatcher, and there's actually been going on at the same time as going on here in the U.S. The railway workers in Britain have been have had major strikes throughout the country all year long. And that is actually one of their main grievances has been the privatization of the rails in England. Uh, just a little add on to that. In England, the actual railways themselves are owned by the British Parliament, right? They're owned by the British government. But the railway companies that run the service on those rails are privatized. It's a pseudo thing. Uh, Thatcher actually was uh, was against the privatization of railways. It was later uh, PMs that that really indulged in this privatization process. In the U.S., it's the other way around. We have Amtrak, but Amtrak does not own any railways themselves. In fact, they pay uh, the privately owned companies to use their railways. Just wanted to say in Japan, it's kind of a weird hybrid thing where Japan Railways itself is technically publicly owned, but there's a lot of, it's also in private hands as well. And then there are a multitude of private railways that operate throughout the country, especially in the major cities as well. I just wanted to say it was very interesting to look at the notes of exactly the way that the both major parties voted. You know, there's been a lot of talk about like, Republicans being the ones that we should like, you know, point our aims at. And yes, the workers, yes. But the Republican Party is the same as the Democrat Party. They're both bourgeois. They're both against us in every single way. Like we can work with the workers of these respective parties and get them to realize as well, like, hey, these guys are not on your side. They're anti us. Yeah, real quick. I know everybody's in slightly different situations, but just COVID taught us this. This is more uh, striking and less unions real quick, right? You can technically survive a month. They can't go without two weeks. That's all I'm saying. Thank you. I'm just curious because we've been talking about the Democrats versus the Republicans, and we all know that they're the same party. It doesn't matter. Is there any propagandistic value to calling this essentially what this is? This is fascism. This is when the authoritarian government that we are under is cooperating with big business to reduce workers' wages, living standards, and everything else. And that is pretty much the communist textbook de definition of fascism. They've appropriated the word for over things recently, but this really is what it is. Is there any propaganda value to that? When we, it, it's incredibly dangerous to throw out the word fascism, yeah. um, especially in modern society with the way it is being used constantly. It's become one of those online things where people will just say something they don't like is fascism. So unless you're in a situation where you can explain that explicitly and present that argument, um, it's better to just explain the conditions of the workers in, in the opinion of, I think, the groups that we've been working with on this. But I saw Comrade Angelo put his hand up, so I believe they'd want to respond to this. Yeah, I think Dimitrov, as communist, we follow Dimitrov. And he seems to be the best one who gives the definition of fascism. Whenever the opposition political parties are banned, are banned, Whenever the trade union movement is banned, that is the keynote for a fascist society. The persecution of a scapegoat can be part of a fascist society, but it also can be part of a reactionary society. And they're different, comrades. Fascism and reactionary are two different things. So on the surface, emotionally, we say fascist but it's not fascist. And the reason why it's important to show the difference is because if you remember the story of the boy who cried wolf, nobody would listen to the boy. He kept crying wolf, wolf. And then when the wolf really came, no one would listen to the boy. And that's why we have to be careful with the word fascism. Thank you. Yeah, I just wanted to give a, uh, an update on a couple things because there's a couple things that happened after we put this um, class together. <clears throat> In that last slide, you noticed a couple uh, instances where we re referenced uh, machinist local 696 president Reese Murtaugh. And 
later last late last week, he officially announced that he's running against he's running for president of District 19. And there's there's a whole slate of people and they're looking to overtake because they're not happy in that union. Also, earlier today, it came out that there's a new a BLET president that was elected. Uh, so, the, again, more, more backlash from the workers. And to give an accurate number of the amount of workers that are represented by the four unions, I found this out today as well. Uh, the four union, uh, four of the 12 unions that voted against the deal represent 55% of the workers. So it's a clear majority of workers that rejected the deal. And you'll see the corporate media constantly talk about the majority of unions voted against it, but the vast majority of workers voted against the deal. All right. Thank you all for coming to the school today, and I hope you have a good night. See you, comrades.